few weeks. Um, last week I was on vacation, went to Morocco. I'll talk about that in a bit. The week before I actually did record a podcast and I even edited it. Spent a couple hours editing it. I took longer than usual because it wasn't very good. And then when I was done editing it, I was kind of like, eh, not really feeling this one. It's a little boring listening to it. Felt a little bored. Felt like it was forced. Like I was just trying to squeeze in a podcast before I left so that you know there'd be one because I knew I didn't do one the previous week and I knew I was traveling the following week. So I was just trying to squeeze one in and uh, wasn't worth it. Didn't want to release it. Um, I have it, but going to be in the dustbin of history. <laughs> but anyway, I got a lot to talk about this week. I'll start out with the Morocco vacation. We went to uh, Ifran, which is a town in the north, presumably to go skiing, but there was no snow. So we didn't do any skiing. And uh, that was a little disappointing, but the hotel was nice. The reason we even had the idea to do it is because like five years ago, I was just got super into geography. I think I mentioned this before, but I can name every country in the world. At least I could five years ago. I think I could still do it. You got to start out with Oceania, the uh, 14 countries there. Then you go to South America, the 12, and then 23 countries in uh, North America, which is actually hard. That's one of the hardest ones is North America. You think US, Mexico, Canada. But after that, you need 20 more. Um, but I used to be able to name all the countries. I got into it and I was like just searching for stuff like, you know, what's the coldest place in Africa? And Efron was it. And you could ski there. So we kind of joked about skiing in it. And then uh, Heather's mom comes out every year in February during Sasha's winter break. And so Heather's like, hey, uh, you want to book Efron for skiing? And I was like, yeah, great. But it turned out there's no snow. So we were just in this hotel uh, for four days, which was a very fancy hotel. I don't think there are any Europeans or Americans. It was like all rich Moroccans in the hotel, which is interesting. It's pretty fancy. I think the government owns it or owns part of it. Our driver uh, told us that. So it was cool. And then after four days there, which was a lot of downtime because no skiing, a lot of going to the sauna and the spa and playing. They had this like, it was crazy. They had this like entire gym complex they had built attached to the hotel, like full basketball court with, bleachers to watch and all hardwood floors and ping pong tables and all this stuff. And there was no one in there. And it was very weird, but Sasha and I would like shoot hoops, but mostly just played ping pong the whole time because now she's into ping pong. That was cool. And then we went to Fez and Fez is like an hour away from the hotel. And it's a really crazy city um, because I think it's like about six or seven square miles, like the, the Medina, the old city, which is where we stayed in a Riyadh, which is like an old palace. It's pretty run down. We've been to Marrakesh like six, five and a half years ago. And Marrakesh was, you know, it was poor, but there was like a lot of restaurants, cafes, like what, you know, Western style stuff, Moroccan, you know, Moroccan style, but obviously catering to tourists and foreigners. And it was a little bit more upscale, but Fez was like, it was pretty rugged. Marrakesh had the cats and the chickens and whatever in the alleyways and dogs that you didn't know if they were dead or sleeping. But, but Fez was more run down. It's kind of a craft city. Um, and there's, there's cool stuff. Like they make incredible like tiles and um, like outdoor tile furniture and rugs, hand, hand stitched rugs and leather jackets that they have this tannery, which they take you to. And it was interesting because we had this guide um, and you kind of need a guide for a couple of reasons, but we had this guide that was um, used by Heather's friend who started a, a travel company and they they do tours of Fez. And this guy was really good. And he took us to these legit places. And it's interesting because you know, we bought some rugs. We might've got rugged, it turns out, but 
because the shipping costs a lot more and customs issues that he swore wasn't going to be an issue. But your guide kind of helps you because A, he takes you to like the authentic places. There's a lot of knockoffs. But B, he also kind of represents you because like the uh, the disparity in wealth between anyone who would like travel to Morocco as a tourist and the especially in, in Fez is, is just vast. And so everybody just sees you kind of as a dollar sign. I mean, the people are very nice. And they're very friendly, but there's everyone's like trying to hustle and get something from you. Like the people that you deal with who you're just like working in a restaurant or at the hotel are very nice. But, you know, everyone on the street's trying to hustle you, give you advice, help you out, take you on a tour. It's like, it's kind of chaotic and, and stressful. It's like you just don't want people talking to you because they want money from you. But anyway, the, the guide, our guide was really good. This guy, Naeem. And he took us to all this like street food and all these cool places. And Sasha made a got food poisoning. She was kind of sick the last day, but you know, it is what it is. You're eating street food in a hole in the wall, beyond hole in the wall in, in Morocco. It's not like a hole in the wall in LA or New York. It's truly a hole in the wall. Uh, but it was good, actually. The food was tasty. It was just this chaotic, hectic place. But Naeem took us to this, uh, this tannery where they make leather jackets. I almost bought one, actually. I probably should have bought it. It's 250 bucks US. 2,500 DROMs, 10 to one. So it's easy to make the conversion. It was like this suede. It was like the real thing because he only took us to like the authentic places. But I decided I wasn't going to get it. And the guy was trying to sell me, but I don't, you know, I'm very like, somebody's trying to sell me something I don't want. And I'm like, thanks, appreciate it. And like, they stop. But Heather's mom, I guess, is like, was there and he was trying to sell her and she got a little flustered. And, you know, so she didn't buy it, but she went downstairs and she just casually mentioned to the guy, she wasn't trying to like tattle on the guy. She was just, casually mentioned like, yeah, I just felt a little pressure. And our guide got enraged and just lit up the guy who was pressuring her to, to buy it. And it's like saying, I'm not going to use you. I'm, I'm not going to, I'm going to, I'm not taking anyone to see you anymore and really scolded him. And you realize like the incentive for like the shop is to just get as much out of you as they possibly can, because you're not a repeat customer, right? You're a tourist. You probably never be there again. It's just to get the biggest profit off of you they can. But the, the incentive of this guide who, you know, works for Heather's friend's U.S.-based company, you know, is to, is to have a good experience for the, uh, for the people that he's guiding, for his clients. And so he kind of represents you. And it was kind of cool. Like, so he would only take you to the authentic places and he would tell the guys like, hey, get them, a, you know, a reasonable price. I do think we kind of screwed up the rugs a bit because I foolishly took over the negotiation and, and, and asked for a low price, including shipping. And of course, that was dumb because... They did the cheap shipping and then assured us customs wouldn't be a problem. And now we have like 200 bucks worth of customs dues on these rugs to go get them, which was annoying, but it was worthwhile, even though it was a bit stressful. The other thing about Fez is there's 9,000 streets in a six and a half square mile footprint in the Medina, in the old city. And there, there's like alleys that wind in alleys and they're all winding and there's not, you know, not square at all. And you may have in a hundred yard stretch, like three turn off. Some of them are like just barely wide enough to walk through. So there's no way if you walk for five minutes that you're able to find your way back. There's just no way. I mean, there's like signs for stuff, but there's a hundred signs for every different thing in every different street. It's, it's insane. Um, so you basically need not only a guide to show you around, but if you know we went to a restaurant, like they would send a porter, they would like send a guy to your hotel to pick you up and walk you 15 minutes to the restaurant and then walk you back afterward. You, and you always had to tip the guy, which is stressful because you'd be like, do we have small enough 
denominations of bills. I and mean, it's just like, you know, no one has changed. It's just like this crazy thing. But you also feel a bit like a child because like you need someone to walk you. It's like, oh, you need your mom to walk you or your dad to walk you somewhere to the restaurant because you'll get lost otherwise. Um, it was a good experience. It was just, you know, it was just a bit, you know, rugged. Uh, it wasn't relaxing, I would say. I, I got to chit chat with a bunch of the guys. They spoke all right English. I had to use a little of my very, very bad French. You know, Arabic's the first language, French is the second, and English is the third. One of the porters uh, on the way to the restaurant assured me that, that the Morocco-France match, semifinal World Cup match, was fixed and because Macron was there, and they made sure that France won it. And uh, I was sympathetic because I don't like Macron either, but uh, I, wasn't enti- I wasn't entirely buying his thesis. Uh, but it, it, was, it was cool. You know, it was, it was, a, it was definitely an experience, but, you know, you got to be up for kind of an adventure just a lot of jostling and elbowing and tight spaces and hectic stuff, but it, w- it was cool. But anyway, I'll actually put some, uh, I put a couple photos on Twitter, but I'll, I'll put a couple more photos and maybe some videos in the uh, realmanwood.com notes. Uh, if anyone's curious, got some good photos. Part of the problem with the photos is I never put photos of Sasha up on social media because there's just so many scummy, gross people. I'll put Oscar up on there. I'm not above using my dog to get social media attention. But my kid, I just feel like it's almost like doxing them. You know, it's not uh, definitely weirdos on Twitter. And uh, speaking of weirdos on Twitter, um, I signed up for my first NFBC league because, I don't know if I mentioned this, I don't think I mentioned this because it was the podcast they didn't release, but, but I found some people interested in running my baseball teams for me. And so I love drafting fantasy baseball teams. I love fantasy baseball but I couldn't deal with the grind anymore. And I was doing a half-assed job and I'm too competitive to just do poorly because I didn't do a serious job on the fab. Um, for those of you who don't listen because of uh, fantasy sports, that's free agent budget to pick up the players. And I don't do a good enough job setting lineups and really week to week looking ahead. I just don't want to be around on Monday night, on Tuesday night, on Friday night, on Sunday night. Just such a ordeal. You know, it's fun for a week or two. And then all summer you're doing it. You're at a barbecue in LA and it's 4 35 o'clock and you got to leave and get to your computer for the deadline. I'm just, I'm done with that in this part of my life. But I got some people who were, were good quality people who were willing to split the uh, prize money with me and, and run the team for me. So I decided to do it. It's perfect. I get to draft. I'm doing the research now and I get to have a fantasy baseball team. It's uh, best of both worlds. So the NFBC, as they do, they post, you know, hey, he's back. Chrysalis, beat Chrysalis one is up. And some guy with like seven followers says something like, this is a piece of shit. Good thing the new management kicked that John Stossel looking motherfucker to the curb or whatever he said. I can't, I don't remember the quote. And, you know, normally I just block, either I'll make fun of someone like that or I'll just block them and forget about it. But somebody else responded to it the next day, like to kind of say like, you know, that's a stupid thing to say or whatever to the, to the troll. And then I looked at it again and it was like, John, St- what a weird thing to say about somebody like John Stossel looking guy. Like, Hey, that's just a weird reference. Obscure. Like John Stossel. I barely know who that guy is. He's like a ABC news or something or one of the news channels, Fox news. I don't know. And, but it sort of rang a bell. So I just searched my name and John Stossel. And of course this same dude who was like whining to my partner uh, about my, 
<laughs> it's even funnier because the thing he was whining about was this mask tweet that I made that was so, if you look at it now, it's like basically saying that outdoor masks were creepy. And I feel like the people wearing them would burn me at the stake as a matter of civic duty that they creep me out. People wearing masks outside. That was it. And so this guy decides to run to my uh, business partner, Jeff Erickson, to, oh, he's saying terrible, scary things, dangerous things. Um, and try to, you know, obviously get me, you know, get the, the HR machine in motion. Like, oh, you know, you, this is problematic what you're saying. So the same guy that did that randomly in 2014 and 2016, this guy, I guess he used to follow me. And he, for some reason, was very important to him. He did it uh, two, year, two years apart. To, to tell me that I looked like John Stossel. It was very important for, for me to know that. And so obviously it was him, right? It's like, who the hell else would think that? But then not only was he the guy that always said John Stossel, but then of course he's the same guy trying to tattletale to Jeff that I had posted this outdoor masking tweet. And then a year later, uh, he reviewed this podcast and gave it a one star. A year later, like a year after the whole tattletale episode, I haven't had any interaction with the guy at all after that. So you know, this guy obviously is upset about something. And so he, with his burner account, decided to make up some lie about me that the uh, the new company forced me out, which is totally not true, and to call me a piece of shit while CCing the NFPC, which is obviously still a uh, a partner that I that I have. You know, I still do the Beat Chris list and I still am good friends with Greg and Derek and those guys. And so, you know, this guy's sort of libeling me but he fucks up. He's just too stupid and he get caught because he used the, this obscure reference that obviously like if I remembered it, which I vaguely did, it would be so easy to, to bust. And so I screenshot of the tweets and I made a little thread about it. You can check it out on February 27th, but it's just hilarious. Like this guy just got caught um, using a burner account to lie and smear me. I mean, dude, <laughs> I don't know when this memo got out to these people, but like if you disagree with somebody and it's, important enough to you, somebody you don't know, who doesn't interact with you, doesn't know you, you don't know them. They don't go to your uh, feed and uh, interact with you at all. They let you live your life. They don't bother you. If you disagree with someone like that, and it's important to you, which maybe it's important to this guy, I don't know. You can try to persuade them of your case if you have a case. I don't even know what the, what the beef is because clearly the mask tweet was on point, right? Like it is creepy that people are wearing outdoor masks. It's compliance. It's not uh, scientific. And I said that at the time in April, 2021. And of course it aged very well, but whatever it is you disagree with, if you have a disagreement that's important to you, you're feel free to make your case. Um, that's, that's the way you do it. You don't make up lies about someone with your burner account. It's just low quality, low class. I, apparently this guy thought that was okay. You know, I'm sure he's embarrassed that he got caught but it's only because he got caught. You know, this is somebody who apparently thought that was, that was fine. So I don't know. I don't know where the memo came down that like just total disgraceful cowardly behavior is okay. Like it's not, I think it's kind of a utilitarian thing where people think, well, this guy's bad. He's saying bad things. So anything's fair game. If I have to make up a burner account and make up lies about him and that's fine because he's bad. And so I'm in the service of the good. You know, it's something like that maybe is going on in their minds. But but the truth is like all the stuff that people were angry about and disagreed with me about like, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist talking about the lab leak. You know, uh, I, they don't come back and say, well, actually you were right about that. Or certainly um, it's not some deranged theory that 
has no basis in reality. Certainly it's, I mean, it's obvious that it was a fucking lab leak, but I mean, certainly even officially speaking, even if, if people aren't sure, it's, it's certainly in the running. It certainly wasn't crazy to th- say it was probably a lab leak. And of course, you know, nobody comes back and says, oh, you know, uh, yeah, that vaccine that I was trying to push on you, it doesn't stop the spread. No, it actually doesn't stop the spread. Yeah, you were right about that. There was really no basis for shaming people into getting it or uh, mandating it at all. Oh, that uh, Hunter Biden laptop. Yeah, that was actually real. It wasn't that story about it. That wasn't Russian disinformation. That was real. These people, they (laughs) everything that they were mad about, they're so angry about is actually like you were actually right. And I actually think there's a Thomas Sowell quote that's really uh, it's really on point where he says, you know, people will forgive you for being wrong but they will never forgive you for being right, especially when your being right makes them wrong. And in fact, when your existence reminds them that they got scammed, right? Like they're so embarrassed. A lot of these people, these sort of laptop class midwits, you know, a lot of them are fantasy baseball people. You know, they're, they're, they analyze data and they think they're really clever and they, you know, oh, that was just bad bit driven luck. And now his X batting average was this, his exit velocity was that, you know, they think they're really smart and good at, understanding the data and, and translating to, to real life. And, and they were so wrong about this. It's just very hard for them to wrap their mind around it. That like the less educated people, the people who just kind of take things more at face value were right. They just can't handle that. Like that they were so wrong about this. They'd gotten everything wrong. And so they're, they're so pissed about it. And, you know, if the people who, were, were correct and that they got angry with, I think they're just even more angry. Some of these guys, I mean, the mature thing to do would be like, Holy shit. Like all these things I believe were totally false. And the people I believe were totally wrong. I'm going to stop believing those people. I'm going to stop believing the corporate news media. I'm going to stop believing uh, certain politicians and institutions that have lied and been wrong about almost everything. I mean, they were saying that natural immunity was a conspiracy theory that the MRNA shot gave you better immunity th- than natural immunity. Now, everybody knows with every vaccine in existence that if you get the chicken box, you don't need a chicken pox vaccine. If you get the measles, you don't need a measles vaccine because the real deal is always the best. Vaccine approximates the real deal. It's sort of a, it's a proxy for it that is in lieu of actually getting sick. But once you've gotten it, of course, it's better to have the real thing. And they're actually arguing that. So the the thing isn't that you got scammed. I mean, people get scammed. As I said, like in, in Morocco, we probably overpaid for these rugs. I got scammed. Okay. I mean, no, the rugs are nice, total scam, but I got at least overcharged a little bit. Didn't do a good job negotiating. Okay. I'll take the L on that negotiation. It pisses me off, but I'll take the L. But the the thing to do is to say, yeah, I got scammed. I learned my lesson. I'm not going to trust the people who scam me anymore, and I'll be more of a critical thinker. You know, I'll be more of a uh, a person who does his own research. Um, but they don't do that. They're just pissed that the people uh, who were correct, who they were so angry at for having a different view, but ended up being correct. They're even more pissed because those people's existence is a reminder to them of how scammed they got, and they're still holding on to the scam. You know, they're still holding on to this scam, and it's just it's just embarrassing. I mean, I just, just own it. Just be like, I'm sorry. I was wrong. I shouldn't have attacked you for doing your own research and making your own medical choices. I shouldn't have lectured you who never lectured me, who never bothered me about anything, never told you what to do medically. I never should have gotten to your feed and started lecturing you and dunking on you and trying to embarrass you because you had a different view. 
I never should have done that. I was wrong. You were right. You know, you were right about this stuff. And even if you were, did turn out to be wrong, it was still wrong, my behavior. And disagreements are not a basis for antisocial or super aggressive antagonistic behavior. You're not, you're not entitled to try to harm someone economically and professionally because you disagree with them. Like, when did you get the fucking memo that told you that because you disagree with somebody, you can harm them professionally and economically? Like, what kind of fucking person are you? Have a code, even if you don't like somebody, even if you disagree with them, have a code of conduct for yourself. Be an adult. And by the way, he is, he is not an outlier. This is just normal. There's a bunch of them that made up shit about me. Just really no regard. It's just hilarious that like everything that was in dispute that uh, it's turned out to be hundred percent correct. And so that's why, you know, you, you never see these guys. The first thing these guys, what they should do is just be like, I apologize. I was wrong. My behavior is poor. So I was caught up in a mania. I, there's no excuse, but it's hard to explain. I'm sorry. That would go a long way. You know, that would be sort of what you should do. <laughs> that's the last fucking thing these guys are going to do. Instead, they keep attacking but because you've proven to be right and they can't really go over what you said or use a quote tweet of yours to get you like, oh, look what you said last year. See how fucked up that was. See how many people you killed with this tweet. That won't work. They just do something like, oh, he's a piece of shit. And then they just sit vague like, he's a piece of shit. And then they make up a lie. It would be great. Come at me on the substance. You know, if you have something that you think I'm wrong about, fine. You know, I'm sure there's something I'm wrong about probably nothing that you pointed out, but there's obviously things I'm wrong about. If you, if you have something that you, you disagree with, come, come at me with substance, but it's always going to be vague now because they, they lost on the substance. The, the debate is pretty much over on the substance, or maybe it's not, maybe I'm mistaken, bring some substance, but it's always this vague. And I think, you know, it started, I read something about this, like when the Bush administration was now, I think the second worst administration of all time, I think the current one may be worse as we start to, uh, careen toward World War III, but the Bush administration was pretty horrendous. And uh, when that was going on, you had the rise of sort of the uh, Comedy Central and Jon Stewart. And Jon Stewart, somebody wrote about this a while ago, I can't remember who, pioneered the style of like sarcastic eye roll. So you play a clip of a politician, sort of like sarcastic eye roll and a joke. And it's sort of just a signaling mechanism like, yeah, that tribe, LOL. And, and, you know, I, I think John Stewart might have had more substantive criticism when he was doing that, but I think just the, the tone of it is what took off. So you have all these people that just think the eye roll and the sort of mockery is a substantive critique when it's not. It's part of why there's sort of an unbridgeable gap in the discourse, because this sort of eye roll style of debate or you're a piece of shit, it doesn't get you anywhere. You know, it's not like... I disagree with this. What you said is mistaken. The, the problem too, though, is like, you know, if you get the war of studies, right? Here, my study shows the vaccine saved a million lives. Well, my study shows the vaccine killed a million people. Well, you just have the war of studies. And of course, the war of studies is not uh, going to advance the ball. Once you get in the war of studies, forget it. I think it's the Orwellian thing where the party's first and most essential command was to ignore your eyes and ears. Something to that extent that he said. And I think you, you somehow just have to go by that. I mean, COVID, as I pointed out many times, it was obvious after a short while that like nobody was dying that you knew. Like nobody in my mom's generation was dying that I knew. No, no celebrities of that generation were dying. 
I mean, COVID was, was pretty obvious after a few months that, you know, there were not bodies in the street. There were not tons of people I knew dying. In fact, to this day, there's nobody I know who's died of COVID to this day. So, you know, it, not saying that people didn't die of COVID, but that in terms of the, the response, it was pretty obvious that it was a huge overreaction because people are dying all the time of flu and respiratory diseases and pneumonia anyway. And then you add in the fact that they suspended use of antibiotics in the, the pneumonia cases brought on by COVID. It was, I, I'm not sure COVID was anything more than a regular respiratory virus that um, had it been treated like other respiratory viruses with antibiotics and zinc and yes, ivermectin, hydrochloroquine, uh, whatever else they were recommending, certain doctor's protocols certainly wouldn't have hurt. And the deaths would have been a fraction of what they were. And so, and then there's all the with versus of COVID. Anyway, so yeah, I mean, just, you got to trust your eyes and ears and, and things like, you know, after a while, the, the danger of COVID when none of my friends or family or people I knew or celebrities I'd heard of were dying of COVID seemed pretty obvious that this was not uh, the threat that it was made out to be. And you could show me a hundred studies um, and you can show me a hundred contrary studies, but if it's just this big jungle of disinformation and coming from the government, especially, and then other people are throwing it out, you know, it's, you start, you start to rely more on your own eyes and ears, first principles, your intuitions. Anyway, I don't want to get too much into that. It is what it is, but it was hilarious that the guy, <laughs> the guy was dumb enough to get busted. I just think it's so funny that he just outed himself. Maybe people want to get caught. All right. Bunch of other stuff that is going on. I don't know if any of you guys have tried Noster, N-O-S-T-R. It's a new social media protocol. And basically it's, um, it's totally decentralized. So unlike Twitter where there's an algorithm and I'll get into the Twitter algorithm, it's very frustrating that I feel like nobody sees my tweets or only a fraction of my followers do. And I, there's many people whose tweets I don't see. I don't know why Elon Musk is fucking with the, uh, the latest. I, it's, he can do whatever he wants with the for you algorithm, right? That's sort of like, okay, opt into the algorithmic feed. But the sort of latest follows that you, that you have just in chronological order, why is he messing with that? Why should that be altered at all? It's very suspicious. Uh, one of the guys I follow on Twitter, uh, Emmett Peppers, also listens to the podcast. He's a big Elon Musk guy. And he was, you know, saying, you know, got to give Elon Musk credit. He's done a good job with Twitter. And, and I agree to an extent, like he's done a good job of, you, know, you can say what you want and um, there's less chance of disinformation labels on tweets that are perfectly good information. I like his attitude overall, but why is he fucking around with the latest follows feed in chronological order. Like, why do I need an algorithm for that? The for you can have an algorithm. The other one is just my curated feed. It's very suspicious. Why would he feel the need to do that? What's, what's the issue? What's the, what's the purpose of that? I, I don't think he's answered that question. He said at some point he, he had like reach uh, curtailed based on number of blocks. And then he curtailed his own reach because he's got 130 million followers and obviously he has the most blocks. But then he changed it to and he realized that wasn't a good solution. So then he changed it to, I think he said something like blocks per follow or something like that. But that's a terrible metric too, because while it catches trolls and spam, what it also catches is people like me who are you know, more heterodox thinkers. You know, I got my following from fantasy sports and fantasy sports is a laptop class activity. And the laptop class is mainly pretty woke and pretty propagandized. And so if I'm saying things that I think are true, that are counter to that narrative, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are going to block me and then I'm going to get my reach reduced by, because I'm sort of, my thing is heterodox to the people 
lot of the people that follow me. And the thing about that is that's the most valuable kind of, I'm not just trying to say me per se, personally, but just in general, that's the most valuable kind of follow because it's somebody that you sort of know of and follow and have been in touch with um, who's saying stuff that's not what all your peers are saying. That's the kind of follow you might get a new idea from. That's the kind of follow that might open your eyes to something. These are the most valuable follows. And so if you're curtailing the reach of people because they're blocked a lot, because obviously it's also triggering to people who are traumatized by the whole COVID narrative and don't want to look, you know, have anything outside their permitted line of thinking, they're going to block you. They're going to get triggered. They're going to block you. So of course I'm probably blocked by a lot of people. That's fine. And I have no problem with that. Block me if you want. Mute me if you want. Unfollow. I mean, it's your uh, attention span. You, you guard the gateway to your attention span as you see fit. I'm not here to tell you who to listen to and who not to listen to. But for the algorithm to take that into account is just stupid. You're just going to ruin the fucking platform. And I don't know why he's doing that. How can he not know this? It's just basic. It's, it's pretty basic. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know about Elon Musk. I like a lot of the things he says. Uh, I wrote the Antichrist uh, chrislist.substack.com post on him. And I think he's dangerous because, you know, he's a human being like anyone else. And how, how does he handle this immense amount of power? You know, you don't know. Power corrupts absolute power, corrupts absolutely. What happens with this much power in his hands? Um, we'll see. We don't know yet. Um, so far, some good and some not so good. Um, okay, but but anyway, so uh, so there's an alternative social media called Noster, N-O-S-T-R, and it's totally decentralized. You have a private key and a public key like Bitcoin, and so your public key, you put it into the, you know, and anyone can find you at your public key, but only you have your private key. So you really can't be deplatformed or your reach um, curtailed in any way. And it's catching on among the Bitcoin crowd. And I've played around with it. I have an account on it. I, I can't, it's a long hashtag number. And I'm probably going to delete it and start again because I put my private key into the software and they're saying, ideally, you shouldn't do that. And once you have an account that ends up with some following and some work behind it, you, you know, you want to be able to uh, not have it stolen or hacked. So I'll probably delete. So I'm not going to bother saying it here. I mean, it's too long anyway to say on an audio podcast, but I will link to it when I set it up properly. But you know, for the week when I was on vacation, all I did was check that. I didn't check Twitter, and it's pretty good. I mean, it's just you know a lot of Bitcoiners, and I don't have any following there, and so it's kind of hard because if you post, no one's going to see it. But you can interact with people and and follow and get good information, and uh, it's it's really cool. I think it has a chance to be a game changer, and a lot of the Bitcoiners think it's like as big as Bitcoin or as big as you know the internet. Like this is going to be a huge, huge game changer, and the reason is that. And Twitter could have done this, but they didn't for obvious reasons. And this was a really interesting post I read on Noster by Guy Swan. He made this post and it's really interesting is that, you know, why can't you pay people on Twitter? Like, let's say, let's say I like your, your thread or I like your article and I want to pay you, you know, a dollar for it. I want to send you a dollar. Well, Twitter needs a banking license. You know, you need to have a sort of a bank account on Twitter. You know, if, if I want to send you a digital dollar, if you think about this, if I want to send you a digital dollar, um, you need to have an account, a place that that dollar could be located, a bank account, right? A PayPal account, some kind of banking linked account. If I can hand a homeless person a dollar. You don't need a bank account. I, I can, a physical dollar I can hand to a homeless person, but if I want to send you a digital dollar. You need some sort of account that can hold a digital dollar. And then that's, you know, needs to have a banking license and a banking system. So, you know, before you can just start sending money around on Twitter, it needs to have sort of a banking 
part of it. But why couldn't Twitter and Facebook try to do this with Libra? You know, have its own currency. Well, that would be competing currency to the dollar and the US government shut down Facebook's currency right away. The idea was, you know, I could send you some Facebook currency and you could send it back to me and I could buy services and goods with it. And then it becomes another sort of de facto currency. Airline miles are currency of sorts, right? My airline miles are worth something. You know, if you, you could take dollars or airline miles, but they actually have a value. Um, and so these things function as currencies. Well, you don't need to build a native, you don't need to build a token for like Libra for Facebook or Twitter. You, you have Bitcoin. And if you can send Bitcoin, you know, around Twitter, just have it integrated in Twitter, it's a totally new paradigm because then instead of like having to monetize content through credit cards and Stripe and, you know, subscriptions and, you know, you got to put in your info and put in your credit card info, you're just pushing a button and boom, you know, the money's out. It's like having cash. It's like throwing someone a dollar who's playing guitar in the subway station. You know, you don't have to like register an account with them. You wouldn't do it. But if you have 50 cents, you might drop it in their guitar case. And that would be a whole different way to earn and exchange value and money sort of outside of the system. It's not, you know, it's, and I think this is what's going to happen with Noster. And it's already happening. They're zapping through the Lightning Network, which is the second layer of Bitcoin. They're just sending each other money for posts and quality content, podcasts, whatever. And so this will change everything because you don't need these banks. You don't need these gatekeepers. You don't need Patreon that will deplatform you or GoFundMe that deplatform the truckers. This is a whole different world. And, and what I'm saying doesn't sound like a big deal. Okay, so you, so you can exchange tips, a few bucks here and there for your content on Twitter. But what happens is, you know, in on Twitter, like if you're a dissenter, you know, they used to shut you down. They'd limit your reach. I don't know why Elon Musk is doing it, but they limit, they, they limit your reach, you know, intentionally through the hall monitors that were monitoring Twitter. Um, they deplatform you. They, you know, the payment rails, PayPal, if you're using misinformation, they can lock up your account or seize your account or whatever they said, which is why I deleted PayPal. But, you know, let's be real. It's not just PayPal. All of these legacy systems um, have their ways of, deplatforming, demonetizing dissent. YouTube will demonetize videos or or just delete videos that that's against the narrative, that's information against the narrative. So th this is the world we live in. So dissent is penalized and hawking the narrative is rewarded, right? I mean, think about all the people that got promoted for hawking the Iraq war, right? I mean, these people, you know, some of them should be in the Hague for war crimes and like the David Frums and the Bill Crystals and these people who drummed up support for the Iraq war, they, they should at least be disgraced, you know, if they didn't, what they did didn't, doesn't rise to a prosecutable offense, it's free speech, that they should at least be disgraced, but then they were promoted. Why? Was it because the Iraq war is not a humanitarian catastrophe, a war crime, a total disaster? No, it obviously was. They were, the reason they're not disgraced is because even though they helped foment this atrocity, crime against humanity, they they were with the narrative. They were re rewarded for it. And it's the same thing with the, you know, the COVID, the people who are uh, for vaccine mandates, they're still in prominent positions. They haven't been uh, disgraced and cast out. The people who were uh, for lockdowns, they, they haven't been disgraced because it was with the narrative. So basically dissent has been penalized as it has always been in human history, but we've never had the reach to really, when people are using cash and gold and um, bearer instruments to to transact. You know, you couldn't really deplatform so, someone from the system as easily as you can now when it's all digital. So 
dissent has been punished and, and compliance has been rewarded. But if you have this way of peer-to-peer -peer payment, dissent can be protected from demonetization. Dissent can have its own natural ecosystem where the people who want to support it can support it. And you can't be deplatformed either for supporting dissent, right? Like everybody was terrified that, well, if I support this, then people will get mad at me for supporting it. You know, if I follow this person, then I'm the bad guy. If I defend this person, well, now you'll be able to send, you know, peer-to-peer -peer, uh, cash to somebody and they won't necessarily even know it's you. So it, it's a revolution. It changes the game completely. It takes the control out of the hands of people who want to control the information flow and they can control the information flow by controlling the money flows. Once that's removed from them, then you really have a marketplace of ideas and the best ideas will win and you will not be able to put your thumb on the scale. And this is what the people who've gotten sort of ill-gotten positions of power are terrified of is having a true marketplace of ideas. And I think that Twitter, when used correctly, as flaws it as flawed as it is, is kind of a marketplace of ideas. I feel like I've done a decent job of curating a feed, which is why it pisses me off that I don't see some of my key follows um, that gets me quality ideas, that I've been able to find sort of a marketplace of ideas that I, I've been able to benefit from, I, from thinkers and ideas that have panned out and have gotten some good heuristics and good follows. And nobody, you know, you shouldn't have blind faith in everything. Should always be skeptical in question, but I feel like I've got a great pipeline of credible information, and I, I just feel it's been very valuable to me. And so, I think this can be done at a societal scale with Nostra, which has payments enabled, you know, native payments and Bitcoin enabled to the system. So, one of my projects in the next few weeks is to get that set up properly with a properly stored private key and all of that, and get going on it. But it is frustrating. I mean, I, I realize like even Twitter. I had a huge advantage. I had an XM show. I had a lot of followers. So what I said is broadcast to a lot of people. And anyone who got on Twitter starting from scratch without a platform to, to get a bunch of followers, it's like, yeah, they're talking, but they're kind of talking into the void because uh, if you don't have followers, you know, all you can do is really reply to people. That's the best you can really do. All right. A couple more things. I have a few ideas um, for some sub stacks. One of them is still frustrated on these Portuguese houses, but one of the issues we had was Heather and I really like old houses. You know, we like houses that are from, you know, hundred years ago that are got the old wood and the old floors and the things are just a little bit less cookie cutter. And so, you know, we have these old ruins. One of them, we, we actually have to keep the house, which we're happy. One of them, we can't, we got to start again. And we're trying to, uh, you know, figure out what the best way to do it. And the architects are always building this kind of sleeker, more modern stuff and it's all right, but it's not my style. I like old. And so we're kind of going back and forth. Like, how do you make something nice that's old? And can you make something new that's old with old materials? And, you know, you don't want to look like the lodge. I don't know if you ever, like when you were in camp or in grade school, went on like a field trip and there was like the mess hall lodge. It was like a wooden lodge, log cabin looking thing, but it was always like super granola-y, you know, this sort of like hippie lodge and it looks like shit. You know, and then the modern stuff sometimes looks like a college dormitory or in Sasha's new school is all sleek with this wood and glass and it looks terrible. So there's, there's the old stuff that's like cheesy and crappy and there's new stuff that's crappy and we want something that was good. But I had kind of an epiphany. We're in the uh, car ride uh, in Morocco and I'll talk a, a, more about that in a second. And we're just talking about it. 
you know, what kind of style do we want? Cause the builders that we're talking to are like, Oh, he can do old style brick and old wood and stuff. We're like, yeah, that's cool. But we're like, yeah, but it's kind of like this. It's kind of like everybody likes an old pair of jeans that's worn in. It's comfortable. looks good. Jeans you've worn for a few years that they're comfortable and they might have a little rip, a little wear in them. But you remember, I don't know if you remember like 20 years ago, they were selling like designer jeans for like 400 bucks that had like the knees already cut out and rips, like sort of strategic rips all over the jeans that people would buy, like new for like 400 bucks. It was looked like you had this really worn in pair of jeans. And that was fucking stupid, right? It's, <laughs> it's like, the, first of all, they're going to fall apart. You're paying all this money for them. But second of all, it's fake. Like it, they're not worn in. They're just like in the factory, they, they took them and chopped them up a bit for you. And I feel like that's kind of what you end up doing if you take a, build a new old house. And the thing that makes the jeans good, the old jeans good, is that someone wore them, that you wore them. It was you wearing them, doing stuff in them, living your life in them. And they're lived in and that stretchiness and you know wornness makes them comfortable. They've been molded to your physique over time. And that's why they're good. And I think that's kind of like a house. Like an old house is nice because people have lived in it you know, it's, it's, it's been used. And over that time, it looks old, but has some soul because it's, it's been used by human beings. And I think maybe we build a high quality modern one and we, you know, use it a lot and it gets that, you know, in 20, 30 years, hopefully it's, it's designed well. You need, you need to design houses with certain principles in mind, you know, certain common spaces and little nooks and not some box, that's a modern box. It's got to have some uh, soul to it, even in, even in a modern style. So anyway, I don't know if that's interesting to anybody, but it's sort of an epiphany we had because I was sort of like, don't like most modern houses, but I think we're going to do a new one in the unlikely event that it ever gets approved. But just thought about that. I don't know if I followed up on this, but Oscar is doing very well. His tongue is maybe 10, 15% he lost, but he's still licking, uh, not as effectively, but he still, when he sees me, he licks me. He still licks me a lot. I think it's, it's coming back. He's, he's gotten used to it. I mean, he's healthy as a horse and his fur, his coat is great. He's completely healthy. I think maybe all the antibiotics we gave him maybe even killed some, some infection he had prior even. So he's as healthy as he's ever been. Appreciate a couple of you guys asking about him, but uh, that was a scare, but nothing more than that. Um, he's fine. And I had a couple other ideas, but, oh, it was, it was so, uh, I mentioned this, but, you know, to get to uh, Morocco, we had to fly into Casablanca, which is like four hours away from Fez and the hotel that we stayed at, which was near Fez. And so it was a real pain in the ass because we had to take a car. The only way to fly would have been like a 10 hour layover for a one hour flight. It was been really stupid. But we got this driver, Abdel, and uh, Abdel drove us. He drove us around uh, near, near the hotel. And then he also drove us to Fez. And then we hired him to drive us all the way to the airport in Casablanca. He's a nice guy. I sat in front, so I talked with him a lot. His English was decent, better than my French, so he spoke in English. We were asking about fasting in Ramadan. I said, is it hard for you to fast? They have to fast uh, water and food during daylight hours every day for a month. And he said, it's not that hard. It's only, uh, the only thing that's kind of hard is the smoking because he smokes. Oh, and Abdel was like, oh, it's coming up. It's coming up at the end of March, Ramadan. And Heather said, well, when we were in Marrakesh, it was Ramadan, but it was June. It's kind of weird how it you know, Christmas is always December 25th and even Passover and Easter are always like, you know, in the spring and, but Ramadan seems to move around. And he said, yeah, because it's on the lunar calendar and the lunar calendar is, I think something like 354 days 
a year, like it's the months are shorter. And so every year it's like, you know, 11 days it, it moves and that it takes 33 years for Ramadan to be on the same day that it was. So every 33 years, the lunar and solar, the Gregorian calendar cycles match up again. And it made me think of the, uh, the show Dark, German show on Netflix, great show, I highly recommend it, where I won't get too into it, but basically like the premise of the show is there's this wormhole, you know, this nuclear plant that allows time travel, but it's always in increments of 33 years. And you know, events repeat every 33 years. And the premise is there's these 33-year cycles. And it just kind of dawned on me like, holy shit, the lunar and the solar calendar matches up every 33 years. And it's the basis for why Ramadan moves around the, the calendar the way it does. And I'm sure the, the show's creators probably thought of that when they, when they did it. But, and so I was trying to think about like what today's uh, March 2nd, 2023, what was I doing on March 2nd, 1990, you know, 33 years ago, my college dorm, probably smoking weed. Maybe that means I need to smoke some weed here. I don't know, but I just started thinking like, what in my life, you know, what is cyclical like that? And I don't know if I mentioned this before, but I, I noticed this at the time because I was watching Dark at the time. But one of the craziest things, and this is just, I mean, it's beyond crazy. When Joe Theismann got his leg shattered by Lawrence Taylor, it was November 18th, 1985. And it was Lawrence Taylor, three-time NFL Defensive Player of the Year, in on the tackle, shatters Theismann's leg near the 40-yard line in RFK Stadium or whatever it's called now. and in Washington, 40-yard line. 33 years later, on the same date, November 18, 2018, near the 40-yard line in the same stadium, Alex Smith gets tackled by the only, to, to date, since then Aaron Donald's won it three times, the only three-time defensive player of the year, him and Kareem Jackson, sandwich Alex Smith, and his leg shatters, tib tibia and fibula, same bones that were broken in Theismann, same ones broken in, I think it was the right, tibia and fibula, same, same side of the leg, same bones broken in Theismann and Alex Smith, same yard line, same stadium by three-time defensive player of the year. Apparently also uh, Trent Williams, the Pro Bowl left tackle for the, the Redskins at the time was out. The Pro Bowl left tackle in 1985, Joe Jacoby was out for that game. And moreover, both games ended with the final score 23-21. to 21. The exact same final score, 23-21 in the game. Same bones broken, same yard line, same stadium, three-time defensive player in the year going against a backup left tackle. So make of that what you will. It's a hell of a 33-year recurrence coincidence. Anyway, I got probably 100 other things that I forgot to say because I didn't take notes and I always regret. Right after I end the podcast, I start editing. I'm like, oh, shit, this is what I really meant to say. But I think that's good. That's a long enough one. Till next time.